400 years. 400 years. 400 plus years. When we think about 400 plus years ago, we think about Shakespeare writing Romeo and Juliet around 1596, 97. We think about Macbeth around 1606, 16, We We think about Galileo working on a thermometer and working on a compass and working on a telescope and working on a microscope 420, 30 years ago. We think about the King James Bible, 1611. We, we think about the United States and we think about the Jamestown colony settled in 1607. We think about the pilgrims coming right at 400 years ago, 1620 through 1621. We, we look and we think 400 years. Now imagine 400 years. If God had not shared a word since the days of Galileo, since the days of Shakespeare. As we come to open a new series today on the book of Malachi, we find that As Malachi writes, these are the last words that will be spoken by God through a prophet for some 400 to 430 years. And if God is going to be silent for 430 years, I think those last words that he's going to say are going to be very important. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. And today we're going to look at verse number 1. Malachi 1 and verse Number one, it says this, the burden or a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel by or through Malachi. And with that, let's pray together. Father, I, I pray, God, that you would speak to us today and God, that you would that you would move. Lord, help us not just be people who go through the motions spiritually. Help us to be people with passion for who you are. In your name, amen. When you lose your focus on God, then you begin to lose your confidence in God. You lose your reverence toward God, and you neglect your obedience to God. Thus, we come to the book of Malachi. As we think about the the book of Malachi, God is speaking through his prophet. It is God's word through God's prophet to God's people to confront them for a spiritually stagnant walk and apathetic worship. He is confronting them saying, look, your spiritual walk is stagnant and your spiritual worship is apathetic. I'm looking at you and this is important for you to understand. God's word coming through God's prophet to God's people to say, wake up. Listen to God. Look at who I am. Revere me. Follow me. Obey me. As we think about that, that can be true in our day as well. We can go through the motions of worship and be pretty spiritually stagnant in our walk and apathetic in our worship. Oh yeah, we come to church because that's what we're supposed to do. I mean, we, we come to Bible study. We, we know how to put on the look and yet we can do all the right things and have the wrong kind of heart. And that's what the Lord is confronting the people of Malachi's day with. 
So uh, this morning, I want us to think about this book as we open and share an introduction, as we begin to plow through over the next few weeks, the book of Malachi and what God has to say before all heaven goes silent. First off, let's think about the call of God's prophet. This is called an, an, a, a pronouncement or the burden. We find that Malachi received God's word. This is the word that came by the word of the Lord. Now, as you look at the book of Malachi, it's very interesting, but there are only 55 verses in this book. But of the 55 verses in this book, 47 of them are the Lord speaking first person. Malachi, I'm speaking to my people. I'm speaking. This is what the Lord of armies, this is what the Lord of hosts Says So 47 of the 55 verses are the Lord speaking. So Malachi has received God's word and it is a heavy word. It is a burden. It is a pronouncement. It feels heavy upon him because he realized as he has received God's word that Malachi needs to speak God's word. And that's what happened. Malachi received God's word and then he spoke God's word. He received a call on his life to preach the gospel. And this word was going to have to confront people probably in his family. This was going to have to confront friends. This was going to have to confront the people that he grew up with and has, have known for a long time. And yet the Lord is placing this burden, this pronouncement upon his heart, an oracle that says, you have to go do this. This is my call on your life. Now, all of us have calls on our life, depending on where we are and what the responsibilities are. But sometimes with our call from the Lord, we can kind of neglect that one. Sometimes calls you can't neglect. Julie and I were running around Thursday afternoon into the evening and decided we were just going to pick up Chick-fil-A on the way home Thursday. And so we were on our way home, and Micah was going to be the only one home for dinner that night. And so we're on our way driving up mid-rivers, and Micah calls and says, "Uh, uh, there's a bird in the house. What? There's a bird in the house. You mean in the garage? There's a bird in the garage? No, there is a bird in the house, in the house house. Now, I've heard about birds getting in people's houses, a lot of times down through their chimneys. We have a gas fireplace. It is not through no chimney. Well, this is what happened. Julie has uh, a beautiful wreath on the front door. And apparently, as Micah came through, when the door hit the doorstop in the back, the bird had been hiding down in the wreath and flew out. So, you know, sometimes when you got a call on your life, to get a bird out, you've just got to do it. It's not fun. Now it's kind of funny. It was not funny then, all right? It was not funny then. Now, I've never taken a class, watched a YouTube video on how to get a bird out of your house, all right? So I figured there's one of a couple things that we need to do. First off, we need to get the front door open back up, and then we need to get a blanket. Maybe if with the blanket, we can kind of get the bird moving at least toward the door. The problem was it was dark outside. So we turn off all the lights, and Mike and I are carrying this big comforter around, and uh, we're trying to get the bird. And of course, we have nine-foot ceilings, and so the bird can fly higher. So we're trying to jump with the with the blanket and all of this, and Julie is armed with a broom, all right? So anyway, so we decided if we turned all the other lights off in the house except the light by the front door, then maybe we, we could get the bird to fly to the light. So sure enough, the bird flies to the light. Now, our front uh, light in, in the house is kind of a dome, and you can just kind of barely get your hand in there when you have to change a light bulb. 
So the bird is now in the one light that is on in the house, and it's like, all right, now how do we get the bird out? So Micah, go get me a ladder and my leather gloves. I'm going in after him, all right? So anyway, so I, I grab the ladder, I climb up the ladder, I get the leather gloves, but I have a, a, a towel, beach towel size, held up, and I start to reach toward the bird, and again, we have all the lights off behind us. There's the front porch lights on, and finally, he he... Uh, as I nudge him, he flies out the front door and it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Now I can eat my chicken. So anyway, uh, listen, there are calls on our life that we just have to answer. Sometimes they're not fun. Sometimes they're inconvenient. Sometimes we just have to do it and just do it anyway. And you're going to work at it as long as it takes. And like I said, it's funny now. It wasn't funny at that moment at all to me, especially. So anyway, so as, 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 as we think about God's call on our life, sometimes when it's difficult, we just say no. Sometimes when it's going to be uncomfortable, we just say, no, I'm not going to do that. That looks uncomfortable. That, that looks like that's, that, that might take me some time. That, that might inconvenience me. See, things in our life, sometimes we have to do. But oftentimes when the Lord calls us to do something spiritual in our life, I want you to go share. I want you to go give. I want you to go serve. I want you to, to, to go speak. What, sometimes we can just say no to that. But Malachi is one who says, look, God's given me his word. And no matter what, I am going to go speak it. So we see the call to God's prophet. Then let's think about the context of God's people. What's going on in this day? So in order to understand all of this, you have to understand a little bit about uh, Old Testament history. Okay, so let me give you a quick Old Testament history uh, overview, and, and, and then you'll, you'll kind of grasp what's, what's going on. So you know that under Saul and David and Jonathan, that the, the kingdom of Israel was united, okay? In 931, after Solomon died and Solomon's son began to reign, the kingdom split. Ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. Okay, so 931. Just about 200 years later, in 722 BC, the Assyrians take the ten northern tribes. They captured them. All right? And then God has his prophets speaking to the, the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah saying, look, you've seen what's happening to, you saw what happened to Israel. You better repent. You better repent. Instead, they don't do any better. So in between 605 and 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and they capture the Assyrians. They capture the 10 northern tribes and they capture the southern tribes as well. Now, there are Old Testament stories that you know about this time. The story of Daniel. Daniel ends up in Babylon. You remember Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who wouldn't bow down to uh, the, the, uh, the image of the king and was thrown in the fiery furnace. That's all Babylon. So those guys were carried off to Babylon. All right. So we find then in Babylon since, uh, since 586, these guys are, are doing their thing. About 538 or 539, the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and they take over Babylon. Do you remember the story in the book of Daniel about the handwriting on the wall? That's when the Persians took over. The Persians now are reigning as the world rulers through the Middle East. And what happens then is the Persian king decides about 537 to allow some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. So around 537, they start to go back. And they go back with great hopes. Hey, we're united again. No longer are there the 10 and 2 
It's no longer Israel and Judah. Now that we've been carried off, now we're going back as one country again. And we're going to go back and we're going to rebuild the temple. And as we're reunited and as, as we're able to rebuild the temple, we're expecting God to do great things. Well, they rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel, the priest, encourages the people. Then Nehemiah comes in and they rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But now it's about 100 years later, around 430 to 400 B.C., when Malachi is writing. And there's something about the faith that when a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa loses that sense of excitement and passion about their faith, then what happens is the next generation becomes a little less passionate and a little less and a little more stagnant and a little more apathetic. And that's what's exactly happened over the last 100 years. As Malachi stands to preach to his people, it's been about a hundred years since they landed back in Jerusalem. And the people are probably disappointed with God. We're all back, but there's no Messiah. We're all back, but where's God's blessing? We're all back, but, but why isn't God doing what we want him to do? And the people began to draw away. Ultimately, what happens is they lose focus of who God is. They lose focus of who God is. And as they lose focus of who God is, they begin in this trajectory downward of spiritual uh, stagnation and spiritual apathy. So the Lord speaks through Malachi. And notice the Lord speaks and shows who he is. Notice with me in Malachi chapter 1 and, and verse number 6. He says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father... Where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. So God says, look, recognize who I am. I am a father. God says, I'm a father. I'm a provider. I'm a protector. I'm the one who's to meet your needs. And yet you show me no reverence. I'm a master and you're the subjects. And yet you show me no fear or no reverence. Slide over into Malachi chapter one and look down at verse number 14. It says, the deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. So God says, look, I am a father, I am a master, and I am a great king. And you say you're going to bring one of your healthy uh, uh, lambs or for a sacrifice, and you end up Bring in a sick little lamb with a defective eye or a broken leg. Would you give that to a king? That's the confrontation. Would you give that to a king? Would you give your best or would you give your worst? And you're giving me your worst. But in verse number six and in verse number 14, he uses the phrase, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Now, as we think about this term, the Lord of hosts, It is used about 270 times in the Old Testament. God is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. And as it is used 270 times in the Old Testament, remember, the book of Malachi only has 55 verses. But this phrase, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, is used 24 times. This is an important word. God is saying, I am the God of angel armies. 
I'm the God over all human armies. I'm the God of the celestial beings. I am the God of all creation. I am the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all-seeing. I am God. I am the Lord of hosts. And yet you offer worship in an apathetic way. Really, more worse than apathetic, pathetic. So, as God confronts them, and as they have lost focus of God, they have missed that he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Now, this phrase, the Lord of armies, is used again 270 times in the Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to see at least three other instances in which it is used. First, it is used in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. What does he see? He sees the Lord there dwelling on his throne, and there are seraphim. And the seraphim, these angels, are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. They are worshiping him because of his holiness and his awesomeness. Then, over in 1 Samuel chapter 1, in verse number 11, we find Hannah, who is barren, crying out. And she, she prays this in 1 Samuel 1, 11. Lord of armies, would you notice your servant and give me a son? We see the holiness and awesomeness of God in Isaiah but we see the personalness of God in 1 Samuel 1.11. That the God, she cries out to the God of armies, the almighty, awesome, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And then we see it in 1 Samuel chapter 17. In verse number 45, you remember the story about David and Goliath and all of the army of Israel is afraid to go. And David steps up to fight Goliath and he says, you come at me with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. It shows the power of God, the power. God is Awesome in his holiness, awesome in his personalness, awesome in his powerfulness, and you, Israel, have missed it. But can I ask you, have you missed it? Have you missed seeing how awesome God is? Have you missed the greatness and grandeur of God? Have you missed seeing him in his holiness? Have you missed meeting with him, the personal God who knows the needs of your heart? Have you missed standing up? And moving forward in the face of an enemy, knowing that the God of armies is the one that you go forth in his name. They lost focus of God. And when they lost focus of God, that changed everything. When we lose that focus and we lose that reverence and we lose that sense of worship, then we lose our very own obedience. Even though, They're still worshiping. They're still going to church. They're still bringing offerings. But it's not their best. And their worship is apathetic. But we not only see that they lost their focus, but then they lived in spiritual apathy. It's interesting as the Lord confronts Israel, how they respond. We don't have time to look at every instance, but over the next few weeks we will. But notice in verse number two of Malachi 1. 
I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? God is speaking to them. I've loved you. I love you. And they're like snarky and sarcastic. Oh, God, how have you loved us? Look at our life around us. Nothing's going the way we want. We're not happy. Notice down in verse number six, chapter one. We've looked at this verse. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's your fear of me, says the Lord, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? Seven times throughout this book. The next verse, chapter one and verse number seven. He says, you're presenting, you're presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? Seven times in this chapter, God speaks. And instead of allowing their heart to be open, they come back with a snarky and sarcastic question. Oh God, how has that happened? Oh God, how, how could that be? They're not interested in God speaking. They're not interested in God moving in their life. They want to come up with any excuse that they can and any snarky and sarcastic remark that they can so they don't have to deal with what's going on in their heart. We see the call of God's prophet in the context of God's people, but then thirdly, we see the challenge of God's word. As we think about this chapter and as we think about what is moving and how God is moving throughout this whole book, we see God brings forth a challenge. And listen, This isn't just a challenge from 430 BC. This is a challenge to us today. And I want to give you some real heavy application thoughts. First off, God sees when we apathetically go through the motions. God saw it then. God sees it now. You can come to church. You can come to church. Jesus said in in the New Testament, Oh, you worship me with your lips in Matthew 15, 8, but your heart is far from me. Some of you today, you're at church. You come to church. You might sing at church. You might play at church. You might teach at church. You might do all kinds of service in church. And yet your heart's far away. Your priority of who God is, is is gone. So we have this challenge before us that we need to look in and examine our own heart. What's going on in my heart? And then we need to look up and honor God. Notice in verse 6, a son honors his father. If I'm a father, where is my honor? I need to look in and examine my heart, and I need to look up and say, God, I want to honor you. You are a great father, a great master, a great king, and you are the Lord of armies, and God, I don't want to miss it. God sees when you go through the motions. He saw it then. He sees it now. And can I tell you, I think it happens a lot now. I think we can come to church, meet mama's expectations, meet her wife halfway. Oh, yeah, I'll at least go in the door. Oh, yeah, I'll be a good example to my kids. My heart's not in it. I want to tell you, God sees, and you need to seek to honor him. Second thought as we think about application. We need to think about and recognize that God knows when we would rather argue than repent. God knows when we'd rather argue than repent. God speaks and says, I love you. Oh, God, how have you loved us? 
You give honor to a father or you give honor to a master earthly, but you don't honor me. Oh, God, how have we dishonored you? Oh, God, how have we defiled you? Oh, God, uh, uh, blah. The issue is, is they just rather throw their sarcastic remarks back instead of taking a look at what's really going on in their life. There's a challenge. We need to, to look in. You know, what happens with most of our lives is, is we just want to justify our own sin. So look in and quit justifying your sin. Look in. Quit. God sees it. You're not hiding anything from him. Quit justifying. Quit throwing your questions up to God when you know they're just questions to divert the topic. You don't want to deal with your heart. This is a hard word. Could you imagine Malachi speaking this before all of his family and friends? God sees. He knows when you're just playing. And God's saying, you need to quit justifying your sin. And instead, you need to Look up and you need to return to God. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 7, the Lord says, Return to me and I will return to you. You need to return. You need to come back. You need to get your heart right. Return to me and I will return to you. Between 2011 and 2017, something very interesting happened. Over 250 people died doing this taking selfies. They wanted to say, hey, look, I'm on the edge of a cliff. Look, I'm on the edge of a cavern. Look, I'm up in the air. Look, I'm being crazy. 250 people died. Hey, look at me. And God's saying, you need to quit looking at yourself and justifying yourself, and you need to get your heart right, and you need to get your focus right, and you need to turn to me. Return to me. Third application thought is this. And I I just am amazed at this, that God loves us even when we don't deserve it. God loves us even when we don't deserve it. I'm just amazed. God loves these people. For a hundred years, he's watched them spiritually just decline, decline, decline. More stagnation, more apathy, stagnation and apathy. He's watched them come to church and yet be involved in heinous sin. They come to church and they bring a, a sick, defiled offering. And yet God still reach out, reaches out in chapter 1 and verse number 2 and says, I've loved you. I love you. And in Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he reaches out and tells them, to those who return, I will say, these will be mine, says the Lord. What a picture. God loves us when we don't deserve it. And we look in and we think, man, I need to receive God's love. And then I, I need to, to look up and I need to recognize that I am his. I'm his. That love that Malachi 3, 16 and 17. As the Lord speaks again through Malachi and says, at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord noticed and he listened. And he said in verse number 17, they will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession in that day. Trust me. You walk with me. You love me. I will see you through. And you know what the amazing part is here? We think about taking the Lord's Supper today. And you know what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? We find the church at Corinth 
And you know what many of them are doing? Spiritually stagnant lives, spiritually apathetic worship. When they come to take of the Lord's Supper together in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, they're having a meal beforehand. And those who can't bring good food, they're shunned. And the, the rich and, and the clique and the happy and the popular, they're all together having a meal together, enjoying each other's company. And they're saying, look, we don't want you folks involved spiritually stagnant and apathetic lives. Do you remember the lukewarm church in Revelation 3? The Lord says, I would spew you out of my mouth. And the picture is there's a lot of apathy that can prevail today. So, as we think about the Lord's Supper, the Lord warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses like 29, where he says, you need to examine yourself And as you think about examining yourself, let me ask you, do you know that you know Jesus personally? Do you know that you have a personal relationship with him? If you don't know that you know Jesus personally, can I tell you, the Lord's Supper is something that we do in remembrance of him. And and maybe it may just be best to let those elements just sit and, 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 and not partake of the Lord's Supper today if you don't know Jesus. And if you do know Jesus... As Paul writes to the church, he says those who, who they're, they're not looking at their own lives. And because of that, they're, they're taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, living their own way, delving into sin, doing their own thing. And because of that, the Lord says, I've punished some of them. He says, some of them are sick. I've made them sick and some of them even sleep. The Lord's put some of them to death. That's pretty amazing as you look at the ramification of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord's Supper is a time that we as believers celebrate that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose again from the dead, and I have received him in my life, and I have placed all my trust in what Jesus has done alone. And by partaking of the Lord's Supper, I am proclaiming, I'm trusting the body and the blood of Jesus that cross, that empty tomb as the only way of salvation.